Have you ever wondered what a career in real estate is all about? My 30 Days to Success workbook will teach you what an agent should do from their first day in business through their first 30 days. Everything from finding clients to setting up appointments to deciding what office to join and which type of real estate is good for you, be it residential or be it commercial. 30 Days to Success is a training manual for new people. If you are needing additional training in real estate sales, if your company training program is maybe needing improvement, purchase 30 Days to Success for $79, which includes the link to online training as well as the comprehensive 30 Days to Success workbook. Santa Maria, CEO, Champion School of Real Estate, the nation's leader in real estate education. Our goal is to jumpstart your career, boost your career to the next level, give you insight into what a career as an entrepreneur in real estate is all about. Real estate is the career of top producers, and we are always finding the creme de la creme or best in the business who openly share their steps to success and they are always champions. I'm going to just give you a short little intro, Trey Stone, because I'm so impressed with your background. He is, first of all, very, very successful in the investment part of real estate. And in fact, he is the equityacademy.com owner principal. I'm going to repeat that again. If you want to find him later, he is equityacademy.com. I'm sure by the time we finish in 50 minutes, you're going to know so much about Trey Stone. You will have no difficulty finding him. But uh, right now, I just want to say... He was the youngest past president of the Houston Apartment Association. In 2007, he was the Independent Rental Owner of the Year winner by the Houston Apartment Association. In 2008, the Independent Rental Owner of the Year National Apartment Association honoree. And in 2009, the Texas Apartment Association again gave him the Independent Rental Owner of the Year winner. So that being said, I'm just going to move right into you, Trey Stone. Why and how did you decide to go into the investment side of real estate? What was the defining moment? Well, first of all, I just want to say thank you so much, Rita, for the opportunity to join you on the show. I'm so pleased you're here. Um, as a former student of yours uh, and graduate of your school, uh, it's just been a great it's been a great tool for me in building my education and my knowledge. And I've known about Champions being kind of the the behemoth in the industry for such a long time. 
I felt uh, a little nervous when I first met you, when our mutual friend, Ronnie Matthews, said that he could introduce us. Love Ronnie um, Matthews. Yeah, He's a legend. And I just felt like, wow, you know, it's just something that uh, early in my career, I never would have imagined to have this opportunity to sit down with you and get to know you on a personal level. So just thank you, you for that opportunity. Kind. Thank you for that very, very kind compliment. Absolutely. However, it is quite mutual. Some of you may recognize his voice. He has been on KSEV radio for many years. And uh, so today, getting ready for our show, Joseph Owens and I were like, well, he knows how to do everything. So we'll just <laughs> sit down and have fun. But well, how did you decide to go into real estate? So, you know, it's an interesting story. I was in college yeah. and a lot of a lot of people I know, I feel like their story begins with a mentor. It begins with somebody that inspired them. And for me, it's no different. So when I was a student at the University of Texas at Austin, earning my finance degree, I felt like I needed to find a way to get right into business, you know, which may or may not have been a good idea because I didn't know what I was doing, but I, I didn't want to just get a degree in business. I wanted to be in business and I was impatient, you know, to be a business owner. Oh, that's interesting. I'm going to stop you there for a minute. You just didn't want a degree in business. You wanted to be in business. Yes, ma'am. That's a huge statement. Well, it was something that since I was a child, I just always felt like I wanted to uh, own my own business. I know that sounds strange, but uh -huh. I always felt like I was going to be in business. And I just assumed that meant I would own a company of some kind. And so I started publishing a magazine uh, when I was in, in uh, my, I guess, second year of my finance program at the University of Texas. And I had a professor. That's impressive. Second year in yes, finance, UT, you're publishing a magazine. Yes, ma'am. And I published it in both the Houston market and the Austin market. And I did have a co-founder. It wasn't just me, a good friend of mine, Philip Hades. And so Philip and I started this magazine and... In the process, I was taking these courses at UT and I met a professor there who was my professor first for a course in accounting. And then the fact that he made a subject that I did not find appealing, which was accounting, which is ironic because both of my parents are accountants. Uh, my, my mother has her master's in accounting. Did they know accounting. this story that you weren't really that excited about accounting when right. you did it? I was not. And, you know, she has her master's in accounting and a CPA's license. And my dad has That's his impressive. accounting degree. And so both of them having that, I was pretty sure that's what I did not want to do. But uh, this professor really made, uh, he really made the subject interesting and he applied it a lot to business. And so it didn't feel like it was just the numbers. And I, I do enjoy uh, numbers, but I've always enjoyed their application to a business, not just theory for the sake of theory. And so he introduced these Harvard uh, review case studies so that you don't have yeah, to go to Harvard mm -hmm. to do, you know, and you mm -hmm. can learn from them. And I loved that. And so I found out that he was teaching a course in real estate. And so I signed up for that course too. Okay. And in the course of, uh, in, the, in the process of taking his two courses, I got to know him a little bit as my professor. And he was interested in what I was doing because I had just mentioned it casually during his office hours. I came to see him about something in the class mm -hmm. and uh, so he asked me to bring him a couple of issues of my magazine, which I did. And then he invited me out to his home, which was very kind of him. Yeah. And it was on uh, Pascal Lane in Westlake uh -huh. in Austin, which a lot of people called CEO Lane at that time. And he had, you know, multiple technology company uh, CEOs and CFOs and COOs as neighbors. 
And as we got out to this beautiful home and he's got cascading levels off the, off of a hill where one levels the, the sport court, you know, another levels the putting green, another levels the pool. And I'm going, how is this? So I I asked him, I said, right. How are you doing this on a professor's salary? You know, were you born into money or, you know, what's the story? Plus I noticed that he was super passionate about basketball and, and tennis and he coached his kids and was really involved in all that. And he explained to me that, that while he taught as something he was passionate about, that he made all of his money in real estate and he had been a business partner of Ross Perot and a number of deals, which I remembered from his uh, presidential campaign years earlier. And he showed me off in the distance, the frost bank tower in Austin. And he said, you know, we, we built that, uh, my partners and I. And that was kind of a stunning revelation so teaching to teaching was his passion. It was. But he made his money in real estate. In real estate. And so that just made a huge impression on me. And I thought, okay, I don't have a background coming from money. I come from humble beginnings. And I don't know uh, what all the different possibilities are, ways to make money. But this seems to be something that has allowed this person to have a life that I would want, where he was really involved with his family he took me to his country club and I met, you know, some of his extended friends and saw his kids right around he on golf courts. He saw a lot in you, Trey Stone. He was very kind. He invited you out. He saw the entrepreneur in you for sure. He was very generous. And I was, it changed my life because it, it set me on a path to figure out, well, how did he do it and how did he get started? And I actually bought my first rent house from him. Uh, it was one that he had owned for a very long time. He'd reached the end of that 27 and a half year depreciation schedule. Uh-huh. And so he thought, oh, I don't want to have to now have income that's not covered by depreciation that I have to pay taxes on, God forbid. And of course, being Austin, he had a huge capital gain opportunity to sell that property because he had owned it for a low cost basis for such a long time. And so he was kind enough to, to help me buy my first rental property from him as well. And so I was kind of off and running. Uh, and by that point, I think I was a junior uh, in, in college. And I just continued in real estate from that point forward and always had that goal of balancing family, balancing, you know, a business, and then also balancing a passive investment pool of income producing real estate. And when you see someone that's done it, Mm -hmm. it just gives you that evidence and proof that it can work. Well, many people see those that have done it, but I want you, which you already know, I want you to know how very intuitive you were that you knew it was a very special opportunity that he invited you there to see what he was doing. And that it almost sounds like he took you under his wing a little bit and mentored you that you had the opportunity to buy your first rent house from him. He did. He also uh, had a another pivotal role, which is that he introduced me to the publisher of Texas Monthly, uh, Mike Levy at that time. That's pretty pivotal. It was. And here I'm producing my little magazine. I'm meeting the publisher of Texas Monthly, you know, so I went over to the Omni where he officed and went up and met him. And what Mike said after meeting me and chatting for a while, he said, Trey, I think you're a really talented young guy. I think you're going to do well, but it's not going to be in the publishing industry doing what you're doing it's going to fail and you don't even know that it's going to fail. And it was, um, it was a very, uh, kind of humbling moment for me. Right. It was very, very, uh, tough, you know, feedback to get. 
And he said it was because the the print medium in general was um, becoming less and less profitable. Mm -hmm. And he felt like with the cost of everything from ink and paper to distribution, mm -hmm. that the economics didn't really support startups in the printed media space anymore. And he felt like if you didn't have already an established subscription base that was much larger and some economy of mm -hmm. scale, that you were somewhat set up to fail. He said, however, he said, I hope it fails as quickly as possible because the sooner that you, you know, get rid of this magazine and find whatever it is that you're going to go do, the sooner you're going to be massively successful. And he said, I know I'm a hundred percent certain that you're going to be massively successful. I just know that it's not a mess. So the sooner that you get rid of this and find out what that is, the better. And that was tough wow. feedback, but wow, was he right? He was a hundred percent right. So what a tough conversation. And you definitely were not really mature at this point. You're in college, got your little magazine. You're at Texas Monthly Headquarters and they cut you off at the knees. A hundred percent. But it was a good thing. It was a great thing. So then I know you went into mortgage lending and I know that you had benchmark mortgage and you originated single family loans. Yes, ma'am. And you did that from 2001 to 2006. Then at the same time, you had Texas diversified interest and you were then originating commercial loans. Yes, ma'am. So I just love all these little dots that when you look at it today, you literally connected the dots backwards to be where you are today. If you didn't have the finance degree from UT, if you hadn't been a loan officer, a lender, a mortgage broker, you would not have seen all of the structure of loans that I'm imagining were like a springboard to say, maybe I want to do something involved in the lending side. So first I'm going to ask you, because you are one of our wonderful champions, how did you find Champion School of Real Estate? You know, it's funny because I thought about that before today. And I was thinking, uh -huh. how did I originally come across it? But your company, Rita, has been such a dominant player, the 800-pound gorilla in the room for so long that I remember when I decided to go get my agent's license, I just immediately already knew the name of your school. And it may have been through contacts when I was originating all those loans with you know, the mortgage business. It may have been through the fact that I had made my niche in mortgage lending, uh, serving people who did investment properties. That was what I really focused on. Okay. Um, and so maybe just in, in learning and talking to those people, I heard about it, but I, I, I don't remember someone saying you need to go to champions or, you know, Googling it or something. I just remember already knowing that it was the dominant player in the space. And that's what every and, owner wants to hear. Well, Thank it you. was the truth. I Thank mean, I didn't need so an much. ad. I just already knew. So Celebrating 40 years in business this year. I am always like truly proud of wonderful people like yourself that I'm able to get to know better and interview that, yes, you come in, you take the classes at Champion School of Real Estate, but you're so darn smart individually, you decide what really works for you. And I know when I talked with you earlier, you looked at originating commercial loans and you're thinking, 
okay, residential, I make this much money, commercial, I make this much. Is that how it happened? How did you decide to go into the commercial side of investing? Sure. So I was working for a company called Benchmark Mortgage based out of Frisco. Um, uh, two guys, Brian and Stuart, own that company. As far as I know, to this day, they still own it. And I was their first branch manager in the Houston market. And ironically, uh, at church uh, a few years back, my wife and I bumped into one of my old loan officers, who's now a branch manager, the one that you may have seen a sign on I-10, you know, when you're heading west, where they have the big benchmark mortgage yes, sign on the side of the freeway. Absolutely. And he had been recruited to come work for me. I recruited him from a company called Countrywide at that time. Yes. So they're still around. They're still doing well. And as I was originating those loans, I would pay them a fee on each file to keep me in compliance with all the regulatory you know, rules and requirements. And that allowed me to really have a much lower overhead in operating my branch. And as I started to find that these single family investors who would not just buy a single property, an average of every seven years, like your typical home buyer, but instead uh, would come back and do 10, 12, you know, 15 loans with me over and over and over again, as they continue to, you know, buy more deals, renovate them and make them ready and lease them out or flip them. Mm -hmm. I realized, wow, I can do so much more transaction volume with a small number of a paper clients who actually have some money, who actually have good credit. So they're easier to finance. They're great to talk to. And they're also people I can learn from because I still have this passion for wanting to learn to invest in real estate. And it kind of dovetail with that. And one of those clients said, Hey, I'm buying a small apartment complex. I need you to go find me a loan. And he just assumed that I knew how to do it. And, you know, hey. That was a huge directive. It was. <laughs> and I look, I'm from Texas. And, uh, you know, we don't mind uh, here being having a little bravado, right? So right. I thought, oh, sure. And his name was Mike. I said, Mike, no problem. Uh, I'd be happy to do that for you. Uh, let me go get uh, some options, send me the information on the property. Uh, and then I'm dialing for dollars trying to find out who knows how to get a multifamily loan done. Um, and so eventually I kind of stumbled through it and we did close that deal and I did help him obtain his financing. And, and it was a, it was really a, a, a great experience because it taught me that, Hey, I can just go do something that I have some related experience in, but maybe I haven't actually done this particular thing before. And it was also great because everybody how much around time me, did it take you to find it took financing? me, I want to say two or three months to get Not the deal done. But wow. I mean, for a multifamily that's deal, that's not excellent. unusual. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it was also a great time to do it. It was kind of in the middle of the refi boom, okay. uh, if you remember those those years. And so there were a lot of people competing and low interest rates. And the guy had a pretty good balance sheet. So he was a good borrower. Anyway, so from there, I realized that you didn't need the same licensing and regulatory you know, requirements to go originate commercial loans. Maybe you do now, but you didn't at that time. Mm -hmm. So then I formed my own company uh, to go out and, and place those loans. And not only did I make more of a commission as a uh, as a loan officer or branch manager, whatever you'd want to call it, uh, than I would off of a single family loan, but I realized that the upside and the pro formas, which I had to learn how to understand and read the numbers for these multifamily properties to mm -hmm. finance them, uh, what I learned was, wow, these guys, the upside that they had in the multifamily deals was just wildly different from the upside in a single family deal because they weren't limited to the value of the comparable sales. They could go in and increase the income that the property produced and then exponentially increase the value of that asset. And so I saw some of my clients, you know, exiting deals, making these incredible returns. And I realized that 
I needed to figure out how to go uh, become an apartment owner. And one of my clients who I was working on a loan for uh, became a mentor to me. His name is Emory Jacob, and he still owns apartments in Houston to this day. Okay. Uh, his company is JAW. Uh, uh, it stands for, um, I think it's uh, Jacob Anderson Went originally, which is our first, him and his first two partners in their first apartment deal, a 240 unit deal out in A-Leaf. And then he went and bought thousands more units. And he let me follow him around like a puppy dog. That's amazing. And learn from him. And so wow. that's kind of how I made that transition from being in the lending side of things to now not just investing in single family, but investing in multifamily. You've had a lot of people that just like you, Trey, that well, you know, your professor- No accounting for taste, your, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to get this wonderful mentoring, wonderful free advice. And I know I actually got reacquainted with you through Ronnie Matthews, one of our mutual friends. And I know Ronnie does business with you as well. But uh, you have that very likable, genuine personality. But I'm going to take it a step further because this is what really impresses me tremendously. Um, first of all, I want you to see his brochure, which is very nice, especially for those of us like myself. I want it really simple, clean, you know, not a lot to have to read. Um, but on this page in the back, of his brochure, his portfolio brochure, you literally have the property name that was sold, the unit count, uh, purchase price, the purchase date, the sales price, and the sales date. Yes, ma'am. What really impresses me tremendously is if I just look at the total unit count you've been involved in, it's 5789 Yes, ma'am. And then the purchase price for those units, $198,985,302. So $198 million for the 5789 units. The sales price, and you have the dates here, the sales price, $300. $36,860,466. Therefore, not being your mom, the accountant with her master's in accounting, but doing the simple math, a profit of $137,875,164. So putting everything transparent in your brochure really caught my attention. Thank because you. Because it for sure says that you know what you're doing. So how do you go about finding the properties? And obviously you don't have to give us as much information or as little as you want, but how do you find the properties you're interested in investing? How do you find your investors? So to kind of get started in the business, mm -hmm. that was one of the reasons that I wanted to enroll with Champion School of Real Estate, because I wanted to get that license uh -huh. so that I could get on the MLS and I could find these properties myself and not always have to re rely upon a third party. Although I've always been happy, you know, to find a deal through any source, whether it be another agent or whether it be through a friend or seeing a sign somewhere and pulling over. Um, I certainly have no prejudice about where I find deals. But I wanted the access to the MLS, not just as a consumer, but as a real estate agent. 
And so I started out doing that when I was doing single family properties. And then as I moved into multifamily properties, I found that it was very difficult for me anyway to break into that because my family didn't have a background in commercial real estate at all. Mm -hmm. And by the way, on that point, a lot of people consider apartment complexes to be commercial real estate. Other people will call them residential real estate because people do live there. Uh -huh. From my point of view, they're a little bit of both we because multifamily. There we go, multifamily. Yeah. And so as I was exploring those properties, I found that a lot of the brokers that I spoke to really were not that excited to get my call, which was oh. a big shock because when you're dealing in single family, someone's okay. very happy to get your call that you might want to look at a deal. Definitely. And with these multifamily brokers, I was finding them through LoopNet and I was going to meet with them and try to talk to them about investing. And I had never owned an apartment complex before. And so they were really just not particularly interested in arranging tours for me and kind of felt like I was not going to be able to close those deals. Ooh, so that was tough. So what I finally did was I was able to convince my buddy that I met through him being my client as a mortgage broker uh, that I mentioned earlier, Emery Jacob. Uh -huh. I was able to convince him uh, to let me get into a deal with him. And I say let me because I didn't have enough money to meet his investor minimum. Um, but he was very kind and he let me do it anyway. Um, and I did tell him that, hey, uh, you know, his favorite drink is vodka fresca. I said, those are on me for the rest of all time. <laughs> and if we ever meet somewhere for dinner or lunch, whatever it may be, you're not paying. And to this day, I don't let him pay for anything anywhere we go. And he complains about it all the time because now we're more colleagues and friends. Exactly. We've owned two boats together and we've, you know, long-term friendship. It's wonderful. But I'll never forget that he was kind enough to let me do that. And then by the time I moved into subsequent deals, I now had a little miniature track record of having been in that first deal. And I may be of, I may have been guilty of aggrandizing my role in that transaction where really I was just sort of a, 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 a miniature volunteer sidekick to Emory in that deal. Um, but certainly when I approached brokers, I talked about, well, my apartment complex, blah, 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 and my partners and blah, blah, blah. And so that kind of helped them get more comfortable. And I worked with a broker named Charlene Nixon. And Charlene has been here uh, doing real estate deals in Houston for 40, 50 years. Mm -hmm. And she's still going strong with it and very, very talented, brilliant woman. And she saw some potential in me as well and was willing to bring me in as the first time deal where I was going to be the lead investor. And she knew that was a risk, but we've closed several deals together now over the years. And then through those deals, I met the brokers on the other side of the table representing the sellers. And then now I've done obviously hundreds of millions of dollars in business with some of these other brokers. But unlike single family, where there's just this huge swath of realtors that you can reach out to, multifamily deals, especially the ones that I buy, class B and class C properties, mm -hmm. they're really sold by kind of a, a handful of firms. It's not a huge group of people out there doing it. And you kind of have to have a little bit of a way in, you know, to have credibility with them. For sure, you would have to have credibility. And for sure, it's impressive that just by, I want to say, the connection in the universe, you got your first opportunity with your friend that at that point, he was just giving you an opportunity to let you see what he does to get involved. If you've been out of business for a while and need to understand etiquette in the workplace, or you want to know how to better manage your time, then you need business etiquette. 
you're on a lunch date with a customer and you want to feel confident about dining etiquette and introducing your clients correctly to others, you also need business etiquette. This course also teaches you how to public speak, how to set your lifetime and daily goals. If you're in sales, this course and class is a must. We sometimes believe times have changed to casual, but casual does not mean non-professional. Our Champion School of Real Estate Etiquette course fills up quickly for people from all walks of life. The loud voices of body language, the slam dunk preparation for the job interview, the powerful first impressions you want to make with your clients, all of these are part of this must-take two-day course. It's through Champion School of Real Estate's virtual campus, so you can enjoy the course from home. The best $145 you can spend to get you prepared for your new career. Just for our new people, you threw out some things that I want to go back and ask you to clarify. So you said that you invest in mainly, I think you said C&D class buildings. B&C. Okay. So for our new people, because we will have right now literally uh, hundreds, if not thousands of new people listening and watching, how does that rating go? I love how right before you asked me a question, you talk about thousands of people listening and watching. So now I'm going to be really nervous with my answer. But uh, uh, so you're a specialist. No, you're not. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, so, uh, you know, I guess to, you wanted me to speak to just the process of what makes the different asset classes within yes, the industry. Yeah. OK, so, you know, this is a very subjective thing. Uh -huh. And what I find is that when someone is uh, buying, uh, they like to try to characterize, let's say it's built in. 1985 and maybe it needs some work uh, as a buyer they'll try to characterize that as a, a class c property because they're trying to argue for a lower value mm -hmm. and then suddenly when that same person you know goes to sell that property oh, it's a, a b plus almost <laughs> a minus property and it's the same asset Love and it. so there is a bit of subjectivity uh -huh. there but generally speaking class a are properties that at least at this time and it changes obviously as the years go on that i've been in the industry but I would say something that's built in maybe, for example, 1995, year 2000 or newer uh, properties that have also a clientele uh, that's typically going to be a little bit higher income. Some of their amenity packages may be a little bit more advanced and a more complete uh, offering. Uh, and so we all know those new construction deals that we see all over town. And then the class B properties are going to be the ones that maybe are a little bit older. They may be uh, you know, if you really kind of run a class A property down, you might make it into a B property if it's only 10, 15 years old, but usually they're more in the, you know, 20 years old range or so. And they may, and from there again, where it becomes B to C really is a subjective line. But I think of properties that I buy that are, you know, let's say 1980 or newer, especially once I renovate them to be properties that are eligible to be class B properties that I buy that I've owned that are 50s or 60s or 70s construction, even once I renovate those properties, I generally consider those to be class C. And then there is class D out there. And I, I knew a guy, I can't remember his last name, his first name was Juan, 
but he owned a bunch of these Class D buildings all over Houston. And they operated a little bit more like the motel, you know, type of sure. business, almost like a boarding house type of mm -hmm. deal. For me, those are not investment grade properties. For my partners and I and my lenders, mm -hmm. we like deals that we can go. And once we have renovated the property, we've increased the value of the property, uh, we'd like the property to be uh, financeable through a GSE. So that's going to be a government sponsored enterprise like HUD or Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac because there we're able to get just incredible terms exactly. that we couldn't necessarily get if we didn't have access to those products. So for example, I refinanced one of my properties with a $39 million loan uh, going back about a year and a half ago now at a 3.4% interest rate fixed for the next 10 years and it's full term interest only, which means for the entire 10 years, there's no principal payment required mm -hmm. at all, just that 3.4% interest. So it's mm -hmm. borderline free money, right? And not only that, but they allowed me to take $13 million out of the deal, you know, when I placed that loan mm -hmm. on it. Now, had this been more of a class D property, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Catherine, uh, who runs this part of the country for Freddie, I know her well, mm -hmm. and uh, that's not my originator. That was Mike Thompson with CBRE, but they would not have touched that property with a 10 foot pole had it been in that class D, you know, category. But if you have a class C property and it's well-maintained and well taken mm -hmm. care of, or you have a class uh, B or A property, you can just go get incredible financing. It can be non-recourse to you, mm -hmm. so that really it's the property that is qualifying, not just the borrower. Non-recourse would be amazing. It is. Yeah. And uh, it just gives you opportunities, for example, with Freddie Mac, as I increase the income from the property, mm -hmm. I'm able to go back and take down additional supplemental loans without incurring any additional closing costs or interest rate risk on my first lien. They'll just add you know, additional debt to that, if you will, almost like you would think of a home equity line of credit. And sure. that's an incredible program to have. It and there's is. no limit on the number of those. And it can also apply for a buyer who comes in and buys the property from me, but doesn't want to put up a huge down payment if it's now worth a lot more than what I owe on the property, as it right. usually is, if I've done my job. So they can use that supplemental loan as well uh -huh. to come in and assume my existing note, but with even more leverage to where they can put up a reasonable down payment even if they're paying a lot more than what I owe on the property when I sell it to them. So that's the reason I focus in that BC space. And I like to look for value add deals that I can reposition and make them nicer. I'm going to say, Trey, right now, we have a number of people that in the last, uh, let's say, eight or 10 minutes, their heads are literally spinning. <laughs> I'm sorry. They were, no, no, no. It's a good spinning. Okay. <laughs> They were trying to keep up with you, but unless they've taken our finance class or unless they're a loan officer, um, they're like, oh yeah, I've heard those terms. Not really sure exactly what they mean. And honestly, this is a great springboard for two things. The first is when I met this guy and realized what a great teacher he was, we have him scheduled. August the 16th for our Houston Galleria location, September the 20th for our Houston North location, uh, October the 18th for our West Houston location on Highway 6 near Katy, and then on November the 15th for live broadcast, literally for the world. And it will be a 6.30 to 8 p.m., one and a half hour introduction to investing. 
And so much of what you just talked about so naturally, which makes so much sense, especially to our loan officers that are listening. But, oh my goodness, to even talk about a 3.4% interest rate is just amazing. And it is free money. Um, but all of the government entities that can be your leverage in order to have the lending available and um, all of that information, I know you're going to happily give in this one and a half hour intro to financing. And I'm so ex- into investing. Uh, so, so, so excited for anyone interested in knowing more about literally what Trey Stone does all day long. We will have that opportunity live and in person at our three Houston locations and then virtually on November the 15th. So one little final thought on that conversation because it works in so beautifully here. I just want you to know what impressed me in your brochure, and you really can't see this very well, but this is what I'm referring to. Not only do you show one of your acquisitions and you show the before property, but I look at the after property. And I think, yes, not only is it more upgraded, it looks more inviting, it's refreshed, but what used to be just an empty dirt field, I noticed that you and your investors have a beautiful playground there. Yes, ma'am. So it has to make you feel sort of good as well. But not only are you investing, uh, obviously making money for yourself and your investors, but you're also helping people. Absolutely. I, I have found that, you know, some people equate business as being sort of a zero sum game and that there has to be a winner. And there has to be a loser. And what I have found uh, that's very enjoyable about the single family rental properties I've owned and the multifamily property rental uh, rentals that I've had is that you can really go in and add a lot of value um, that improves people's lives by making the property much more attractive. It's very obvious in your brochure. And in the process of doing that, you know, you didn't just give this money away. Uh, typically, what I find is that the increase in value is a significant multiple on what you've invested in that property. So it comes back to you many times over. Um, and, you know, as a kid, uh, I remember in church, that was the kind of thing that they would teach you that uh, part of the reason that we tithe and we do for other people is that uh, it brings you into God's favor and then you'll experience that coming back in your life. Mm-hmm. And what I've seen with with real estate is it very much is an example of that. And so uh, with these properties, what we try to do is think about what our tenants want. And one of the most important things to our tenants are their children. In fact, I would argue, and as a dad myself, you know, the most important thing, because where you grow up as a kid in a lot of ways will frame, uh, you know, your paradigm and the future for your entire life. And so what we've done with our properties is we've been really, really aggressive about trying to reduce crime at our properties. Um, I put in sort of an unprecedented amount of lighting. Uh, I have drone footage of my properties at night and it makes it look like all the surrounding properties are actually completely dark. Fantastic. Like there was a power outage and we're the only Uh, one that had a generator, generator but it's not true. They have power. It's just that we're so much more lit up. It's like a a baseball stadium at night. 
And then we have um, lots of security. We also use uh, law enforcement officers, like my brother, who's a, a police officer with the University of Houston Police Department. He helps me locate police officers to work as courtesy officers at our properties, and we take good care of them as well. So the first thing we try to do is create a family-friendly environment where people can feel, uh, let's just say, more safe. You know, uh -huh. you're always hesitant as a property owner to say safe for liability reasons, but we can certainly make it much more safe. You got it. And we don't say, hey, this person's breaking the law, but they pay rent, so we'll leave them in place. No, we're not going to let you stay if you're involved in any kind of nefarious activities at all. And at a lot of low-income properties, people don't buy them because they're fearful of exactly that. You know, what happens if I get a criminal in my rent house or in my apartment complex? And I'm here to tell you that there are ways you can remove those people and you can do so within the confines of law. You can do so safely, at least here in Texas. And what I have found is that just by changing that aspect of the property, by mm -hmm. removing a, the criminal element when you buy a property, mm -hmm. uh, that in and of itself is transformative, you know, for the way of life of everybody there and the value of the property and what rent people will pay. But when on top of that, you fix everything that's broken. And then on top of that, you say, hey, there's no playground. Let's put one in. Or there's one there. I can't tell me how many times I've bought a property. And I wish there hadn't been a playground because the thing was a hazard. It had all kinds of rusty, sharp edges and poles that used to support some sort of playground equipment that were lopped off at the bottom. Right. But now it's a trip hazard with a big, nasty, rough, you know, rusty edge. Mm. You've seen that at properties. Mm -hmm. And you think like there's kids playing here all day. Exactly. How many of them have already been hurt by this thing? Exactly. Um, so we go in and we try to reamenitize the properties. We try to fix everything that's not you know, functioning properly. And in the process of making these upgrades, we're now able to run the property with really low turnover. And I think what a lot of people focus on as new investors in single family, multifamily property is they're always worried about occupancy and they're always worried about rent and how much is the rent. And that's, those are important things. But both of them pale in comparison to the importance of controlling your turnover because turnover is the cancer of the uh, rental investment industry. If you have high turnover, just like if you had high turnover with your sure. employees in your business, um, you just can't make money because they're always getting a special moving in and then not paying you on the way out. But if you can keep people happy and make them feel like you've created a bubble where their children grow up in a safer environment and with a, a better quality of life than what they normally would expect for that price point, people will stay with you forever and they'll refer everybody that they know. So then you're not marketing to a bunch of strangers that all live at the same address. Instead, you have a community of people that are connected and are really invested in the property. And if somebody's up to no good, they're going to let us know about it right away as well. So very high on your list is protecting your investment so that you don't have turnover, which makes so much sense. And again, that's why I pulled those pictures out, because it showed that you obviously care about the properties, but more importantly, you care about the people that are in the properties. Yes, ma'am. So you, on the front end, I'm sure, tell them, oh, we're going to do so much of a better job. But then when they actually see what you're doing, that says everything. The proof is in the pudding. So uh, that information is so inspiring for so many that are listening today. Because again, sitting in the classroom, you're going to get that license, you're going to take our prep, you're going to pass the exam, and then it's like, what am I going to do? There are so many options out there. And the direction I'm going to go right now is if you are involved in real estate as a salesperson, 
my goodness, you should be investing in real estate as a salesperson. 100%. And um, yet as well, most people, whether they're in real estate or curious about real estate, they think I don't have the money to invest. So tell us if you would, how do you overcome that objection and not even an objection? How do you deal with that? How do you become an investor when you feel like you have very little money? The path that I usually recommend for people is, you know, kind of a few steps. The first thing I tell people is that you can't get away from the basics of financial responsibility and financial literacy. If you don't have a roadmap, it won't matter how fast you drive or how fancy your car is. You're still not going to get where you're going. Where you want to go. And so what I encourage people to do is to get the education and also really seek out a mentor. You may not know who that person is today, but as you start to sell real estate and you've got your license, or let's say you're getting licensed to Rita's uh, group uh, to go out and originate loans, like what I did, either way, your clients need to be people that you get to know more than just a name on a piece of paper. You need to get to know them. And now in the age of Zoom, it's even easier than it's ever been to have sort of that face-to-face -face interaction that previously we had to drive across town through traffic and be able to do. If you were even lucky to do that. If yeah. you could do that. So I think that for people that get to know the folks that you do business with, you'll find uh, sooner than you think when you start looking. It's almost like when you buy that car and then you're like, oh, I see the car everywhere. You know, before I never saw that car when Isn't I bought it. It's so unusual. Yeah. It's just a psychological switch right. that once you flip it, you start finding mentors. You exactly. find other people that have done it. It could be a friend. It could be a family member. It could be a client. It could be someone that you meet uh, when you're ordering coffee at Starbucks. That's happened to me before. Uh, so the point I'm making is that, and on, on top of that, you can seek this out. There are groups out there. Equity Academy is, is where we do it, but lots of other groups that are out there, real estate investor associations and groups, classmates, you know, people that you meet when you're attending your real estate classes or other things, those are all people that are potential contacts. So now if you find someone that has already been successful, even if they just have one rent house and you don't have any, they can be a mentor to you because they've got one, right? That means they've had to figure it out at least one time. And so they'll tell you what went well, what didn't go well. And then maybe you find somebody that has had four or five or has had 10 or 15. And so as you find a mentor and you combine that, with getting the formal education, that kind of helps you create your own little roadmap and know where am I actually going versus just kind of blindly having productivity, I'm sorry, having activity without productivity because you don't really know what you're trying to accomplish. And what I would say to do next for people is that they should learn right away, uh, just like if you read The Richest Men in Babylon by George Clayson, that they should be taking a percentage of the income that they earn off of every commission, off of every deal, off of every paycheck, if you're a W-2 employee somewhere, and they should be putting that aside to invest in themselves and to put into some investment property so that they're building that pool of funds. Now, while that's building, if you're like me and you know I'm rather impatient and I'm rather action-oriented, what I said was great, I'm doing that, but by my math, gosh, on my spreadsheet, it's gonna take me a while to have enough money to go buy my first property. So then I started seeking out properties where there was a possibility of seller financing. And I did that on my first couple of deals because I had no money. I grew up next to a trailer park in Pasadena and you know my parents did okay, but at the end of the day, we weren't rich and it wasn't something where they were just gonna hand me money uh, for me to go out and invest. 
I didn't have that rich uncle that died and I got a check in the mail or something. So neither did I. Yeah. We have to make it ourselves. It makes it, I think, even more rewarding. A lot more exciting and rewarding. Yes. But here's the great news. While that is a challenge, starting to save that percentage of your income and in acquiring that discipline. And it's also a challenge to find those first deals that you could possibly even do with seller financing, which is out there. Um, what is great is that once you've done just a couple of them, it's not that hard to find an investor where now you have a track record. You can take them out and show them your couple of properties, introduce them to your tenants, and they'll realize, wow, okay, this person is successfully operating rental real estate. And now you can utilize the combination of your resources with their money and your time and your expertise that you're developing as a rental property owner to then be able to buy more. And as long as you continue to do that and just grind it out and do a great job with those properties, eventually the combination of cash flow and capital gains from the deals that you do early in your career will become the seed capital to then go multiply that over and over again in more and more deals. And I always tell people that I, uh, I grew up loving the game of Monopoly, you know, with the little greenhouses and then the red hotels. Sure. And that is exactly what I've done in real life. I started with rent houses. I built up some equity there. I moved into multifamily and then I did more of those over time. And you don't need to have a lot of money or a lot of experience to do this, but you do have to have a tremendous burning desire and ambition to be successful. And you have to do it in a way where you help and serve other people along the way. Because if you do it purely from a greed-based perspective, people will smell that on you a mile away. No one will want to mentor you. No one will want to invest with you because what you are is louder than what you say. And so if you follow through on the commitments that you make to your partners, even when it doesn't benefit you to do so, over time, that trust and that reputation will really allow you to grow your investment portfolio to a point where now your day job is hopefully something you're passionate about, but it's not something that you need to pay your family's bills. And I think that for me was my, my big driver. You know, Growing up in the neighborhood I did, uh, a lot of crime, several friends murdered in high school and seeing the path a lot of people were taking that would get mixed up in drugs and gangs. I wanted to find you know, a way that when I had kids someday, they wouldn't necessarily be exposed to that. And I could maybe give them a little bit of a head start. And I wanted myself to be careful about the people I surrounded myself with because one bad choice mm -hmm. can basically ruin the rest of your life. I feel like I'm doing an after school exactly. special now, but <laughs> it was for me a big driver when I got into my properties because I saw what it was like to be around low income properties and to be around a lot of crime and a lot of neglect. And what I've learned is that when you give people kind of uh, a hand up, you know, then that comes back to benefit you. And I think that's the most satisfying part about my career today is I've been able to then now mentor other people when originally people were kind enough, as you said, to help me yeah. along the way. Um, and it's nice to see that come to fruition. Do you want to know what successful people in real estate do every day? Learn the how, the why, the what of their daily success by tuning in to our Champion School of Real Estate podcast every week. Every Wednesday, we will add new insights to elevate your entrepreneurship and help you make new breakthroughs in your business. You can do it. We can help at Champion School of Real Estate Weekly Podcast.